The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. A wake-up call. Almighty God, I need you to come and anoint my lips with the Holy Spirit fire that this message that you've placed on my heart will burn also in the hearts of my brothers and sisters. For, Lord, it is time for a wake-up call in America. Lord, it's time for a wake-up call in this house, in my heart. Lord Jesus, now, Lord, would you please just step forward And let your glory be seen, that the glory of man would be cast down, and that you would be lifted up. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know what a wake-up call is? You're sound asleep. You're having one of those great dreams. And mom or dad came in. And they said, whoa, whoa, wake up, wake up. It's time to go to school. You didn't want that nightmare. You rolled over. You tried to catch a few more. Your dad maybe came in with a glass of cold water and began to pour it on you. Any of you have a dad like that? There was one thing my dad would not countenance, and that was getting up late. So he would come in and just pinch my nose gently closed. And pretty soon I'd come up like a goldfish gasping for air. It was wake up time. I pray tonight the word the Lord has given me will be wake up time for you. I hope it just cuts off your oxygen for a minute. So you can begin to breathe the air of heaven. And understand that the Lord wants to do something awesome in your heart. I have to begin by just reading through a portion of scripture because what I'm going to share with you took me so by surprise. As I was reading this portion of scripture, I was yawning. This scripture was putting me to sleep. It was boring. Yes, scripture is sometimes even boring for me. And I read it anyway. And as I read, I pray that God will quicken my spirit because I know that this word cannot be comprehended except by the quickening power of the Holy Ghost. This word cannot be comprehended in the flesh. And when I'm praying that way and I'm reading and I'm beginning to yawn, if God doesn't step in and quicken me with a wake-up call, cutting my oxygen off, I'll drift off to sleep, and I'll miss what the Spirit of God is trying to say to me. So let me read this, and and I'll kind of watch you drift off while I read it. 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. I'll begin reading in verse 6. 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verse 6. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Have you got that? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You know, I read this and my head was spinning and I was saying, it sounds like it's really important, but I just don't catch it. And I try to read it again and my eyes were watering and, and I was struggling to try to understand what's going on here. I mean, after all, I'm a pampered American. I live in comfort. I have lifestyle. Right? If I don't like my lifestyle, I can change my lifestyle. I'm not being persecuted and I'm not being mistreated. Some of you kids think mom and dad are mistreating you. But basically, you go to the fridge and get what you want. I'd say that's a pretty cushy lifestyle. Try bread and water, kids. That's rough. And then I ran into this next verse. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. And it's like this little phrase, I believe, therefore I have spoken, is a, is a stick poking out of a smooth surface. It kind of catches you as you go by and you say, what's that talking about? It's like a string on a new garment. You've got to, in, just, you have to reach out and grab it and pull it and see what comes loose. So I reached out and grabbed this little phrase, I believe, therefore I have spoken, and I pulled a little bit on it. And that's when the jolt of electricity came. Let me share with you what I mean. This passage is found in Psalm 116, verse 10. Psalm 116, verse 10. And being an understanding Bible student, I didn't go to verse 10, I went to verse 1 and began to read the context. Let's read it together. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice, he heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Now, if any of you have ever tried to pray, you know that after the first five to ten minutes, you've said everything you have to say. And yet Jesus said, couldn't you tarry with me even an hour in prayer? Jesus knows that real prayer doesn't start until the second hour. Why is that? Well, because in the first hour, you just have to unload all of the worldly stuff that's blocking your face from the face of Jesus. He's saying here, he turned his ear to me. 
I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, save me. Who do you call on when you get in trouble? Who do you call on when you get in trouble? Do you have a list of people you like to talk to when something doesn't go right? Do you have your favorite resources that you turn to? A book you like to escape into, a, a video you like to go do, or some other thing you like to go participate in because that rescues you. He's saying, I turned to the Lord, and when I cried out to the Lord, he answered me. He heard me. Now, I don't know if that sends a buzz in you or not like it does me, but I have to tell you tonight, two years ago today, the National Prayer Chapel met in our living room. And in our living room, we had had a man come to our front door from the government in Prince William County and post a notice that we were not allowed to engage in any further religious activity in our home on penalty of the law. I immediately contacted a Christian attorney. Another notice was placed on our door saying you cannot continue holding any religious activity, prayer, worship, or any other kind of activity in this house. It is illegal. And so as I was on my face two years ago before God, crying out to him, saying, you told us that if we came to Woodbridge, we would not sink. Lord, I didn't want to come to Woodbridge. I wanted to go downtown Washington, D.C., where a national prayer chapel should be established, according to Ray Greenlee. And the Lord said, go to Woodbridge. And I said, Woodward where? Woodbridge what? In obedience to his command, we came to Woodbridge against all of our better judgment. I mean, Springfield would be a lot better place to grow a church, but God wasn't interested in growing a church. He was interested in disciplining a people. And so I was on my face and I was saying, Lord God of heaven, I need you to answer my prayer today. If, if we don't hear by Sunday what we should do, I'm going to announce that the National Prayer Chapel is closed and we will have sunk. And your word says we cannot sink. So you have to answer according to your own word. And with such prayers, I continued to beseech him and press into him. And in the midst of this wine, he spoke. And he said, call the Vineyard Fellowship. So I got up from my knees. I went and found my wife. I said, honey, we're supposed to call the Vineyard Fellowship and ask them if we could rent space from them. And Jan said, Ray, we know the people there. It is impossible. They will not rent us space. I said, Jan, you didn't hear me. The Lord said we were to call them. She said, if it's the Lord, I'll call them. 
So she went and called the secretary. The secretary said, Jan, there isn't any way we can rent the facility to you. We would love to. She spent a half hour with Jan on the phone, telling her all the reasons why they could not rent to us. They had band practice on Thursday nights. They'd had band practice for 10 years on Thursday nights. They could not change that. Jan got off the phone and said, Ray, there is not a possibility of renting that church. I said, Jan, let's pray. God said, call the vineyard. 30 minutes later, the phone rang. The new senior pastor of this church that had just been appointed had just taken office that day. The secretary had gone to him and reported to him this request. And he said, absolutely, we can make that happen. Call him back and set up an appointment. Unbeknownst to the secretary, when he had met with the original committee, one of his conditions for coming to this church was that they be willing to share their facility with another congregation. And they had agreed. And his first day, we call and ask, please, may we rent your facility? He said, there isn't any way we're not going to rent to these people. We met with him. We met with his board. He said, how much money would you like to pay for this facility? We said, the Lord has already told us to offer you $2,000 a month. He said, that's not a problem. We accept it. So two years ago, today, the Lord heard my cry on our behalf, and he opened this facility. I share that with you because the issue that I have had with the Lord God of heaven for the last 15 years that has called us on this journey that has resulted in God's extending a call for a national prayer chapel has been a single issue. And that issue in my heart was, can I call on the Lord and he will hear my cry? And the Lord answered, yes. That it's not the Lord who is not trustworthy. I'm the one who's not trustworthy. Now, if you begin to understand what I'm saying to you, unbelief rises up in our hearts and blocks the Lord God of heaven from answering our cry. It is not because of the unfaithfulness of God. It is our unfaithfulness that causes God to not be able to respond to our prayers. Now, with that understanding, let's read again. Psalm 116, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, 
that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. That's the verse. The translation is very difficult. You notice in the New Testament, it is translated, I believed, therefore I have spoken. As I've researched this, probably the most accurate translation is, I believed even when I was greatly afflicted, therefore I said. I believed even when I was greatly afflicted, therefore I said. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. Have you ever come to a place in your life, in the bitterness of your heart, where you say, all men are liars? I can't trust anybody's word. They say, yes, they'll do one thing, and they turn around and do another thing. You put your confidence in somebody, and the turn around, the next thing you know, they've done just the opposite. People say to me, Pastor, I am committed. I'm going to be present at the National Prayer Chapel. I always say to Jan after somebody says that to me, watch, two weeks from now, they'll be gone. Because I've experienced it so many times. My heart sometimes rises up and says, all men are liars. I can't trust anybody. Have you ever felt like this? Like, where can you turn where there's solid ground to stand on? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, he's using this passage out of the Psalms to say, my solid ground is Jesus Christ. And he's never betrayed me. He's never turned me aside. He's always dealt honestly with me. I can trust the word of Jesus Christ. Regardless of the affliction I'm going through, Jesus' word is faithful. And Jesus' word says, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by the blood, and that if I'll confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I can trust him to do that in my life. No bondage of sin can hold me. Jesus breaks it. That's his word. But then I began to meditate on this passage of Scripture in the Psalms. I began to, began to say to the Lord, Lord, what would you give me, what would you open for me that would show me David's heart? What story in David's life illustrates this powerful teaching? You see, I'm, I'm not a very abstract person. I want concretes. My life is a story. It's not a concept. My life is something I'm acting out every day. I'm not thinking out. Praise God. I'm acting out. This, this deal gives me real feelings. I wake up in the morning and I look at my day and I don't have some abstract concept about what's going on. Rather, I say, okay, what's on the agenda, Jesus? How do you want me to walk this today? Where do I go? What do I say? What do I cancel and what do I set up? Order my steps. As I began to pray about this and ask the Lord for something very specific, he gave me something. And I want to just share the story with you tonight. 
because I believe it will touch your heart as it has touched mine. We find David at the end of his life in 1 Chronicles, the 20th, 21st chapter. We find that David has had success everywhere he has turned. He has great wealth. He has all the, the family he could ever hope for. He has all the honor and the glory any man could ever endure to have. He has renown and fame throughout the land and throughout the nations. And now he's living his lifestyle. Now at this point in his life, what the Lord wants him to be doing is to be preparing for the great temple that his son is to build. But at this point, he's not very excited about this temple because he doesn't get to build it. How would you feel if you had to take all of your money and all of your resources and give it to your son or your daughter and they would carry out your plan after you were dead? You wouldn't be really excited about that. No, you want to build it now. You want to see the glory of what has been created by your money and by your power and by your prestige. And the Lord's not having any of it. So David, along with Israel, has become very complacent in their worship. It's become almost ritualized. They're, they're asleep, and they need a wake-up call. So we find in chapter 21, the word says, Satan rose up against Israel. Anytime you begin to get complacent and say, hey, life is good. Things are getting settled. Things are a little comfortable now. You know that Satan is about to rise up against you. You've just had some great success. You've just had a wonderful experience. Your prayer time was just wonderful in the presence of God. And now you've got to go back to the humdrum and you've just turned on to automatic and you're not thinking much anymore. You're just going through the motions, doing what you have to do. You're numbed out and Satan is ready to incite war against you. He incites David to take a census of Israel's fighting men. Now that sounds quite innocent to us in our age of success. I mean, shouldn't I as pastor be counting how many people are here tonight? I mean, shouldn't I have somebody sitting in the congregation who will mark on a piece of paper and be sure to get all the guests' names and addresses so we can follow up five times afterward to make sure that you come back? I mean, isn't that the entrepreneurial model of church today? Absence of the Holy Spirit, but full of marketing. Well, this was David's heart. He's saying, I want to know how powerful I am. I want to know what my military power looks like. So let's count the army and see how many men we have in the army. So David commands Joab to go out and count the troops. 
Joab doesn't want to do it. Joab is a wicked man, but on occasion, even a wicked man has a righteous thought. <laughs> and he says, why should, why should he bring guilt on Israel? I mean, Joab understands that the success of the battle has never been in his cunning and skill as the commander. He understands that every battle that has been fought, he has seen the divine hand of God sweep down and bring about victory when defeat should have resulted. He knows that this little nation of Israel should not be standing as a major world power when they don't have the backup resources to make their point internationally. And yet, repeatedly, every army that has come against David, the Ammonites with a much larger army, and many others, every army that has swept in against them, they have soundly defeated through sovereign power out of God's hand. Joab has witnessed this, and now he sees David saying, hey, let's see how tough we are. Let's see what the army looks like. I want to know how many armed soldiers can I put in the field? Since when has David put one soldier in the field? It's not his job to field an army. It's the job of the Lord God of heaven, the commander in chief. He has forgotten the mighty angel of God that met Joshua and said, I'm not for you and I'm not against you. I'm here as the commander in chief of the army of the Lord. Oh, if we could just get this lesson in our hearts. Did you know when you go to your workplace, you're not going there as somebody. You're going there for the Lord God of heaven to marshal his forces to bring about his victory through the salvation of the lost in that house. You're not going there as somebody. You're going there as a servant of the Most High God. So David, he wants to know how big he is. He's identified himself with his army. Always a mistake. The king overrules Joab. He sends him out through Israel. And he discovers that there are 1,100,000 men who can handle a sword. He can field over a million men. What's the United States have in military power? About 200,000? Or is it 2 million? It's 2 million. No, it can't be 2 million. How many men in the armed forces of the United States? Come on, soldiers. I can tell you right now, America could not mobilize quickly a million men on a battlefield, on one battlefield. We couldn't do it. David could do it. All he had to do was blow the trumpet in Zion. All he had to do was put the call out, and a million plus men would show up on the battlefield ready to sacrifice their lives. Well, there's a problem in verse 7. This command was evil in the sight of God. God didn't like what he did. I can't just go on. I've got to stop here. Did you know that you can make decisions that God won't like? 
that he's watching you. And when you take that course of action and God sees it, it makes him angry. And when you make God angry, there is going to be a consequence. Now, we have adopted a belief today that we can sin with abandonment and that God's not going to do anything because his mercy is so overwhelming. It's as though he's leaving sins unpunished today. But a day is coming when every sin will have its reward. We can't sin with abandon and expect not to face judgment. I mean, I can remember as a child, we went to visit these people. And my parents expected the three of us as boys to sit there and, and be quiet until spoken to. We were not expected to be showing off. But my oldest brother, Roger, was feeling his oats. And the man brought out one of these little cars. They didn't have remote cars in that day. They had little cars with a wire attached, and you had a little thing in your hand. Remember that? And you steered the car with a little steering wheel on this, and you could make it go all kinds of directions. And so Roger got this and he stood up and he began to run this back and forth between the adults as they were trying to talk to each other. My dad was a quiet and a patient man and he spoke once. He said, Roger, please sit down. Roger didn't listen. He just kept running this car back and forth in front of these adults, interrupting their conversation. Dad said a second time, which was very rare for dad. He usually never spoke twice, but this was in the presence of company. He just very quietly said, Roger, sit down. And Roger, my oldest brother, is the kind of guy that you have to hit him over the head with a two before to get his attention. And so he just kept running that car back and forth, back and forth. Dad didn't say another word. Roger was obnoxious. We got in the car. We rode home. Roger thought his judgment was passed. He was talkative and laughing, and we were all laughing, and we were having a good time. We'd gotten away with it. Dad had said nothing more. We didn't notice Dad's silence. Mama was talkative. She was talking with Roger as though everything were all right. I was thinking I was the youngest of three, and I was saying to myself, if Roger can get away with it, I can get away with it. We got home. As we walked in the door, we took off our jackets and we hung them up. We started to scatter, going our ways to get ready for bed. And Dad spoke up said, Roger, I'll see you in the bedroom. Dead silence came over that house. <laughs> Suddenly, all of Roger's guilt came flooding home. And we, with terror, stood outside and listened to see if he was going to have the Board of Education applied. 
it was soundly applied. Roger came out with tears down his face. Dad had gotten his attention. Now, some of you I know think you've gotten away with it. You think you have been able to do what you wanted to do. You've been able to go where you wanted to go. You've been able to say what you wanted to say. And you think you got away with it. And now you're talkative and you're happy. And you say, look, I'm free. You haven't noticed God's silence in your life. You haven't noticed a withdrawal of the presence of God. Some of you are feeling an emptiness in your soul tonight. You're feeling a coldness inside. That's because the Heavenly Father's withdrawn from you. He's being silent with you. Some of you feel depressed and discouraged. It's because God has withdrawn from you. You think you got away with something. But the Lord God of heaven says you haven't gotten away with anything. Judgment is coming. There is accountability for actions. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. The gospel says, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me. Oh, yes, it does say that, but it goes on and says something else. To purify you from all unrighteousness. There's only one way to be purified of all unrighteousness. And that's found in Hebrews 12. It's called the woodshed experience with the living God of heaven. My mom and dad would always say to me, Raymond, I know you're sorry, but being sorry is not enough. Because if you just say, I'm sorry, you'll do it again next time. Instead, you have to feel some of the consequences. And when you feel the consequences, you'll say, hey, I don't want to do that again because I remember what happened. Now, part of our prayer at the National Prayer Chapel is that God will, be bring, will begin to bring the consequences of sin into Washington, D.C. That he will begin to bring judgment unto repentance. What do we mean when we say that? All we mean is that God will begin to step out of the shadow and he'll begin to deal with us according to our sin. Now, let me show you what he did with David. It's terrifying. David, after he gets the report, before anybody says anything to him, says, I've sinned against God. This is terrible. My, my heart is smiting me. I don't like what I've done. He knows he's cut himself off from his heavenly father. Remember, this is the man who wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And right now he knows he has become his own shepherd. He knows he has separated himself from God. Notice what it says. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 8. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. 
So here he is on his face and he's praying and he's saying, oh God, forgive me. I've done wrong. Now our good American religion would say, God should step in now and pat him on the head and say, there, there, little boy, it's all right. But that's not how God is going to grow a man up. God deals according to our maturity level. God deals with us. And I have to tell you, some of you who are just beginning your walk with the Lord, the Lord is going to be very gentle with you. You're going to say, look, I've done this sin. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And it's over and it's finished and nothing happens. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. You are forgiven. But after you've walked a while with the Lord and you begin to step into known sin, you begin to step into pride and arrogance, God deals with you differently. And you see, you have a problem. I hope you understand, by coming to this place, you've got a problem. It means you've heard the word. Not sentimental teaching. You've heard unvarnished word. You know that God is going to hold you accountable. You are responsible before him. Listen to what God said back. The Lord said to Gad, verse 9, Wait a minute. God did not speak to David. God went to a prophet instead. Now God is going to make public the public sin. God usually deals privately with private sin, but God usually deals publicly with public sin. I want to carry that a step further. Parents, if one of your children sins privately, deal with that sin privately. But if they sin in the family, deal with it in the whole family. If the sin is done publicly in the church, we will deal with it publicly in the whole church. If it's, dealt, if it's done privately, we'll deal with it privately. That's the principle laid out in the scripture. Now watch, the Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then decide how I should answer the one who has sent me. What would you have chosen? Which would you have chosen had you been in David's place? David did not hesitate. He answered in verse 13, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So David is saying, look, I... 
I've sinned against God. Don't let men bring judgment on you, on me. He's saying, Lord, you bring the judgment on me you know you have to bring on me. You deal with me according to your mercy. Now, this is the man who is a man after God's own heart. This is at the end of his life. This is when he grew fat and happy and thought he could walk in arrogance before God. He's in deep distress now. But he asks if he could fall into the hands of God. Some of you tonight have sinned against the Lord God of heaven. You came into this house tonight knowing you were sinning privately or publicly against the Lord God of heaven. How do you want God to deal with you? Do you want him to bring the judgment of man on you? Or will you submit yourself to his hand for him to do whatever he needs to do? This church has been praying a very dangerous prayer. For those of you who've been in the prayer circle, you know we've been saying, Lord, be merciless with my sin. Deal with my sin in your great compassion. Do whatever you have to do to stop me from any wicked course. Arrest my direction toward darkness and turn me toward light. Do whatever you have to do to bring that about. Verse 14, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. They only counted the men in that day. My guess is that many more women and children died. This was an incredible blow to the nation of Israel. These were fathers and brothers, husbands. These were family members. The grieving must have been incredible. The sorrow as suddenly they saw graphically portrayed before them the result of sin. They saw graphically that sin will kill you, that you can't walk with the world and with the Lord God of heaven at the same time. God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. Now you understand, they could actually see with their physical eyes this huge angel with his sharp sword cutting off the lives of men and women. I can't imagine anything more terrifying this powerful being, brilliant light, a terrible sword cutting down the lives of families, entering into a house and killing everybody in the house. God's judgment falling without mercy. David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. Please answer me a question. Why did it take so long for David to get on the sackcloth? David thought he'd gotten away with it. 
David presumed on the mercy of God and thought he got away with his sin. But when he sees the angel of God with a sword, he knows that all of Jerusalem is now at stake. God may take out the whole city. I want you just to understand tonight, sin is something that God cannot tolerate. He will not tolerate it. Just because we're getting away with it today, does not mean God will allow it to continue forever. A day of judgment is coming. You cannot continue to wake up in the morning and go about your business in love with the ways of the world forever. This is a very short period of time when we can play with the mercy of God because judgment is coming. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted. I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. In one sense, it sounds very admirable to become now an intercessor. And I have to admit to you, one of the ways I found it most easy to deal with my own sin was to intercede for other people's sin. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It's easier to look at somebody else's life than to look at my life. It's easier to pray. We can stand in a circle and everybody can pray, oh God, do this for us and do that for us. But until I start dealing with me, God's not going to deal with us. And finally, David has come forward and said, God, let your judgment fall on me and my house. These people are innocent. It's my problem. The truth is, it's not just David's problem. It's the whole church's problem. All of Israel has become complacent in the wealth and the glory of this wonderful kingdom under David. The whole church has grown cold of heart. But until David is willing to come before God in sackcloth and ashes and say, Oh God, it's me. I'm the problem here. Deal with me in my house. Nothing's going to happen. Holy Spirit is saying, stop a minute, so I'm going to. He's saying that there is more than one person here tonight who refuses to take your sin seriously. You still think you've gotten away you still think it's going to be all right. And the Holy Spirit is saying, it's not going to be all right. Because in your mind, you're saying, I can leave this house and nobody will know. And my sin is mine. And I clutch it to me like someone I love. I can go out of this house and I can listen to the music I want to listen to. 
I can go to the movies I want to go to. I can do whatever I want to do with my body because it belongs to me. And the Lord is saying to you tonight, judgment is coming on you. Your body is not your own. You were bought at a price. Don't play games with God. I hear this stern warning in my spirit. I can't hurry past it. Oh, Spirit of the living God, quicken now our hearts. But Lord, we don't want to say it's me. Lord, we want to keep this covering over us of imagination, of delusion, and say it's got to be somebody else. It can't be me. It's not my sin. Oh, Lord, would you deal tonight faithfully with my heart? For, Lord, it is my sin. And, Lord, I have to come tonight and say the same thing David did. Lord God, these other people, let them be like sheep, Lord, but it's me and my house. For, Lord, I've walked in disobedience before you. I've walked with a heart attuned to the world and to success. Lord, I've played to other people's agendas. Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. I regret the hours I have wasted And the pleasures I have tasted That you were never in And I confess that though your love is in
accepted, the commandments I've rejected to pursue my selfish end. And I confess I need you to revive me, put selfishness behind Take up my cross again.